You are now listening to the November 4th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Let's Read the Bible, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Let's Read the Bible. Hello, this is the host, Nicole, of Let's Read the Bible. When someone gives you advice, how do you react? Do you humbly accept those words as advice for yourself, or do you feel upset and not want to hear them even though you understand that they are for your own benefit? Do you ever have a negative reaction like, What are you saying? Why do you care about someone else's business? I'll handle my own issues myself. If the advice someone gives me is worldly advice, even if I don't accept it, it may not be a big problem. For example, if someone advised me to buy stocks in the company, but I didn't listen and the stock price went up, I might regret it, but it wouldn't be a huge problem because I didn't suffer any loss. That's just the way things are. But what about spiritual advice given for my benefit? Can I ignore it without much consequence? No, I cannot. Proverbs chapter 5 warns us that if we live arrogantly and refuse spiritual advice, we will eventually experience great shame when we face judgment for our sins in front of many people. The verse says we will regret it. To put it in modern terms, I will read Proverbs chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, How I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. If I ignore spiritual advice that could lead me to the right path, I will regret it when my time comes to an end. Wondering why I disliked that advice and why I disregarded the warnings that were given to guide me in the right direction. What about you? Are you humbly accepting valuable spiritual advice, instruction, and rebuke that can guide you to the right path? If you dismiss such advice or dislike it, you will not be able to complain when the days of suffering and pain come. Rather than waiting for that day, let us strive to become people who can confess with joy and pleasure that I humbly accepted that advice and obeyed it in my life, and that's why I'm having such a happy and enjoyable day today. Let's read Bible Proverbs chapter 5, verses 1 to 23. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path to shoal. She does not ponder the path of life, her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house lest you give your honor to others and your ears to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner, and at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, How I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembles congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, 
streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone, and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed, and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with the forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Malachi Tressler of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix. Today's topic is Delightful Statutes. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Malachi. About two and a half weeks ago, the United States Surgeon General issued a new advisory about the effects of social media use. Uh, The effects that social media have on the mental health of youth. So apparently... Up to 95% of young people aged 13 to 17 report to using social media platforms. And more than a third say that they use social media almost constantly. The Surgeon General reminds us in the advisory that he released 
that adolescence and childhood represent a critical stage in brain development that can make young people more vulnerable to harm from social media. What's particularly concerning is just the sheer amount of harmful content that they can be exposed to, including violence, overt sexuality, bullying, harassment. But compulsive use of social media also disrupts healthy sleeping patterns and distracts from important in-person flesh and blood interactions that are so important for human social development. It is seen as a main driver of the current national youth mental health crisis. Uh, Increased feelings of depression and anxiety can be reliably linked to the rise in popularity of social media use with young people, so says the U.S. Surgeon General. What the Surgeon General might not recognize is that it's not merely the time or the social pressures that come with social media use that cause the difficulty. Young people are being exposed to an overwhelming amount of communicators who intentionally set out to influence their hearts and their minds. Influencers want to disciple them in the way that they think is right. And of course, we know that the system incentivizes those influencers who are the most shocking and the most dreadful. And so they are the ones who are seen and heard more often than others. And because, generally speaking, young people don't necessarily have the ability to discern carefully between harmful ideologies and true truth, they're more vulnerable to being guided off course. This is only going to get more and more complicated and difficult as artificial intelligence is progressing. Uh, I know there are some social media platforms even more recently who have uh, issued these new programs where they have chat agents that you can interact with. And these AI chat agents provide the illusion of counsel, the illusion of empathy, and the illusion of understanding. But they will not, we can rest assured, be providing godly biblical counsel to them. The young are really, by definition, naive. And that leaves them vulnerable to listening to and being swayed by voices of outright foolishness. This is essentially the story of the, that fable that we know called Pinocchio, right? There is that young wooden puppet boy who is naive, gullible, easily swayed, And Pinocchio falls victim to cunning manipulators who are willing to exploit his trusting nature. His gullibility leads him astray, leading him down a path of treachery and trouble. There's that sly fox and cat, along with the conniving Stromboli and the toxic environment of Pleasure Island, all taking advantage of Pinocchio's lack of wisdom. Young people need help to cultivate careful discernment as they set out on the path of life. This is one of the main points of the book of Proverbs, if you've seen it there. But it's probably a situation that I'm sure that you are familiar with, having once been a young person, if you're not currently. Maybe it's somebody in your life who you know to be young, naive, and easily misled, misguided. Well, it's a theme that occurs in today's sermon text as well. We're meditating on Psalm 119 for a few weeks over this summer. And as we learned last week, Psalm 119 is all about rightly valuing God's revelation in words. The way that God has revealed truth and beauty and goodness to us through word. It's a long psalm because the psalmist writes eight verses that each start with Uh, a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so eight verses times 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet give us 176 verses. Uh, One long meditation on God's revelation in words. And he's doing this from uh, every angle. Uh, The reason that he's going through every letter of the Hebrew alphabet is because he wants to be as comprehensive as he can be as he's considering this subject from A to Z, as it were. He wants to be comprehensive 
in this poetic exercise of valuing and meditating on God's revelation and words. So as we read through this, we noticed last week and noticed this morning that it, it appears repetitive. It is repetitive by design. But as we slow down and as we meditate on it, Lord willing, we will notice that there are actually plenty of unique insights in each of the stanzas. Our big idea from this second set of eight verses of Psalm 119 is this. By believing with our heart and confessing with our lips, we pursue God's pure path. We'll break this up into two, two sections Two sections of four verses each. First, bank up and store God's instruction in your hearts, verses 9 through 12. And then second, bring up and delight in God's instruction with your lips, verses 13 through 16. All right, first, bank up and store God's instruction in your heart. I'm going to read those verses, those four for us one more time. Uh, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Verse 10. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. And I want to break this first point down into an A and a B. First, let's just consider this verse 9 as a, a controlling verse of this set of eight. A. Early habits of submission to God are a blessing, verse 9. Early habits of submission to God are a blessing. So what we saw in the first set of eight verses last Sunday is that there is essentially two ways to live. Uh, There is a wise way and a foolish way. There is a way of blessing and true happiness, which is that wise path that God provides that ultimately leads to God himself. And there's a foolish path that we design ourselves that takes us further from God. And so the psalmist wants to be utterly devoted to the right path, you can see that in verse 4, in order that he would not be utterly forsaken by God. You can see that in verse 8. So he's clarified, the psalmist has, his intent. Uh, He knows which path he wants to pursue, that path of wisdom. But he knows himself well enough, as we do too, I trust, to recognize that it's not enough simply to have good intentions. Those often pave the path to hell. He knows that he's prone to wander. He knows that he might stray from the right path. And so he asks the question that we see here in verse 9, how can I keep walking in that blameless and pure path of God? How can any young man or woman, the word translated here as young man could be rightly translated as young girl as well, a young person, And just as quickly as the psalmist raises the question, he provides a response. He or she should guard his or her path according to God's word. Uh, The word translated as way in verse 9 is like a well-worn road. It's a path that has been traveled on a lot. So the wagon wheels have set in their own little ruts. We know this to be true. The mere repetition of the habits that we practice in our lives leave their lasting mark on our behaviors. And with time, we settle into our own way without even thinking about it. That's a second nature. It simply settles in. You know what it's like when someone someone you know pops off into anger or they uh, get excited about sharing some gossip or it's clear that they take offense easily and then someone notices that and they're like, well... That's just his way, his way. This is the concept. The psalmist notes that it is important in life to begin by setting early habits of submitting to God's authority so that the ruts become well-worn in the right places. An archer has to aim true before she releases her arrow. The slightest adjustment of the arrow's trajectory in the bow can result in a drastically different destination of that arrow. Every subtle motion made in those early moments ripples through the arrow's voyage, impacting where that arrow is going to land. So how can a man, a young woman, a young man, how can he keep his habitual ruts of life from getting established 
in foolish quicksand. By guarding that path from its earliest trips, according to God's word. By hearing and listening to wise counsel from those who have come before, to submitting to wisdom, from hearing counsel from those who have already walked the path, who can give them insight to keep them from going astray. Don't go down that path. I had the joy of camping with my family for a couple days earlier this week at Oak Creek, and we did some fishing. And from where we were at, we could see on the opposite side of the creek, there was a deep pool with some fish in it. And uh, so we wanted to get a little closer. And in order to do that, we had to walk down the shore a little bit to find a spot where there were some rocks that we could hop across in order to get to the other shore to just drop right down into that pool. One of my boys went first across, hopping across the rocks, across the creek. And about halfway across, he stepped on a shaky rock. And as soon as he did it, he turned back and warned me. He said, hey, look out for that one. This is the principle we have here. Uh, His experience on that path allowed him to give me information about how to stay safe as we're crossing that creek. So what does this look like practically? For parents, we do well to recognize that paths of disobedience and rebellion are best caught and corrected early in life. There's nothing funny or cute about sinful behaviors or postures or attitudes in children. Don't let them fool you into thinking it's cute. Treat disobedience early and often with loving, firm correction for their good. And for those who have kids who are a little bit older, this is not a law I'm prescribing, but we really should consider delaying giving smartphones to kids. And even when they do get them, As parents, those responsible for them, we should be carefully guarding their use. Hopefully you know that YouTube is filled with foxes and strombolis who would love to guide your kids off to the prison of Pleasure Island. Consider simply not allowing social media use. This is not a rule that you have to obey. Just throwing it out as an option. I'm not prescribing this. This is a matter of wisdom and prudence for your families. But it is true that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And this does not simply apply to children. We know that there are YouTube channels that will convince you of whatever you want to be convinced of. Please be careful. Exercise discernment, young or old, in the voices that you are willing to listen to and submit your wisdom to. As parents, we prayerfully provide the instruction that we find in God's Word to our kids. And then we live in such a way that makes it clear to those kids that you actually really do believe what you're saying. They will notice your lack of integrity when almost no one else does. So if you complain about, if you avoid spiritual disciplines or ordinary graces, your kids are going to pick up on it. They will notice if you're seeking God with all of your heart or if you're simply seeking the approval of others so that they Think well of you because it looks like you're seeking after God. B, follow God, not your heart. Verses 10 through 12. So you have heard it said, I'm sure, or seen it cross-stitched into a pillow, that you should trust and follow your heart. But wisdom would have us train our heart, not blindly trust it. This is the principle we find here in these verses. You can see it both in verses 10 and 11. That God's instruction and teaching shouldn't just bounce off of our eyes. It shouldn't go in one ear and out the other. It should nestle down into our hearts. It should be woven into the threads of our very heart. The problem of sin, as it is understood from Scripture and our own experience, is that our problem is not simply that we've not been exposed to right wisdom. Uh, We're not merely uninformed. We're not merely misguided. Our problem is that our hearts are shady. God's instruction isn't simply for the information of our minds. It's for the inclination of our hearts. The Israelites spoke of the heart as the control center of the human person. Uh, Not simply the place that you feel emotions, but the place that you make decisions. The place that you make plans where your greatest desires and hopes are, 
but because of our fallen nature, our hearts are not the trustworthy compass that we sometimes assume or think that it is. The prophet Jeremiah put us on blast. We can see it in chapter 17. The heart is deceitful above all things, and it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? If the heart is desperately sick and deceitful, and it is, then it needs to be disciplined and healed. And what standard then do we use, friends, in order to do that, to discipline and heal our hearts? How do we sort out our emotions and our thoughts and our plans? By sifting it through the grid of the Bible. We store up scriptural wisdom in our hearts in order that we might not wander from his teaching and sin against him. All sin is sin against God. When I'm in crowded places, sometimes I get a little nervous about having my wallet in my back pocket. And so if I, if I have another option, I'll put it in my front pocket or if I'm wearing a jacket, I'll store it up here in the inside pocket just to be safe. The psalmist gives a picture of a person who values the word so much that he hides it in his heart for fear that sin might prowl by and snatch it from him. It has always been God's intention to have a people who would search after him with a wholehearted devotion. This is central to the whole story of the Bible. It is certainly central to the covenant that he made with Israel when he redeems them from Egypt, and he gives them his instruction, his law, his Torah. It was after he had already entered into a redemptive relationship with them. I'm going to repeat this because if we don't grasp this principle, we are not going to understand why this psalm is good for the Christian. God's instruction is a gift of grace. I know the title of this sermon probably is weird. Uh, Unless you're a corporate lawyer or a legislator, you've probably never uttered the phrase delightful statutes before in your life. It wasn't just an arbitrary list of rights and wrongs for Israel. The, The way that they're able to delight in these statutes is because it was the basis of their relationship with God. It's not a list of do this and don't do that necessarily so much as it is to this is how you have relationship with me. Don't wander off the path. This is the way to me. The invitation to walk in the way of God's instruction is a gift. It is not a way to establish your own righteousness. The psalmist is not self-righteous in his desire to be holy here. His instruction is what creates and sustains our relationship with our God. Rather than thinking of God as trying to limit our freedom or stifle our joy... We have to think of the psalmist when he's talking about the law and the commandments and the statutes and the instructions and the testimonies and the precepts and the the rules and the word. All of these things are gracious guides that turn us from whatever it is that is drawing us away from God himself. The psalmist hopes to hide God's word in his heart. He wants to inform and discipline his heart, not simply to blindly trust his heart he wants it to desire the right things because the ultimate goal of life friends is not to pursue our own misguided fallen desires that might seem right to us but it's to pursue God himself the heart is like a compass sure but it is a compass that we need to regularly reorient to true north by calibrating it with God's word. So when your heart is filled with anger or bitterness, maybe at a boss or a parent or a child, you can bring that that's happening in your heart, you bring that to the Lord, and then he reminds you by his word that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. When you're tempted to pursue sinful lust or to give approval to those who do the same, You turn to his word and you remember that faithfulness to God's created order and fleeing sexual immorality in every context is actually the path to true happiness. In a world of lies, you are reminded by God's word that you should love the truth. You bring your heart to the word and you let it sift out what's going on there. 
Friends, none of this is done in order to make yourself acceptable to God. It is not a way for you to establish your own righteousness. It is not a way for you to work your own way into God's acceptance. It is done as a response to the salvation provided by faith alone in Christ alone. God's word is the map that guides us out of the maze of the rubble of our own sinful hearts. But it is only as effective as we are willing to allow it to be. So how do you hide God's word in your heart? Do you have a regular habit of taking in the Bible, of banking it up, of memorizing it, of hiding it in your heart? Let me recommend a few tools to you. These are three different apps that are available, not the only three for sure. Three helpful ones. One's called Fighter Versus. You can snap pictures of the QR codes or you can just write down the addresses there. Fighter Versus, it's a memorizing app. They've got resources on their website as well. Verse Locker is a free memorizing app. You can set up groups and even turn it into a game with other people. You're competing, uh, outdoing one another and showing honor to God's word, as it were. And another one called Bible Memory, one that I've used most uh, called Bible Scripture Memory. Uh, Memorize, organize, and review verses with and through that app. There's more to this, right? But whatever method you find helpful to bank up God's word in your heart, memorizing it, storing it, find it and stick with it. Be consistent with whatever method it is that you find helpful. And once it weaves its way into your heart, bring it up and delight in it with your lips. Second, bring up and delight in God's instruction with your lips, verses 13 through 16. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. There is a progression that happens here of of God's word throughout these eight verses. Of course, the word begins with God himself. His instruction is an expression of his very character, his very character, which is good and perfect and pure and blessed. And when we hear the rules of God's mouth as he expresses them to us, our right response ought to be to hide them in our hearts, store them up, bank them up, and then... We express them, verse 13 in particular. The rules or judgments of God's mouth enter our hearts and then we echo it back with our lips. Uh, Declaring the rules of God's mouth isn't simply or merely to tell someone else about God's rules or judgments. We are helped to repeat them out loud, even for our own benefit. Well, we know that one great method of memorizing something is to verbally repeat it out loud in your own voice multiple times. We see it in verse 15 that he meditates and fixes his eyes upon God's word as well. And so when you hear the word and you see the word, well, now you've got a multi-sensory thing happening there. It's an additional way to meditate upon God's word. And again, all of this is done with the purpose, the express written purpose of hiding it and not forgetting it, storing it in the heart and mind, verse 16. I was really encouraged by the nearly 50 people who came out on a Wednesday night a few weeks ago just to hear the book of Romans read out loud. I know there was ice cream too, but I think we won people with reading the Bible. Uh, It does signal a great sense of spiritual health when you prioritize gathering and reading Scripture publicly with others. Uh, It took just over an hour to read through the book of Romans together, and the time, believe it or not, passed quickly. It really does help the mind to focus, not just to see, but also to hear the Bible. Now, I don't want to overstate, I don't want to overinterpret what we are finding here, But this is consistent with what we find elsewhere in Scripture. It is consistent with Christians whom we know to be maturing and growing in their faith and Christ-likeness. This is what it boils down to. 
to know how to meditate and delight and rejoice in God's word is the way to a vibrant relationship with God and to true happiness. Meditating, delighting, rejoicing in God's word is the way to a vibrant relationship with the living God. We don't forget the things that we delight in. We remember those things that we delight in. If you buried your life savings in your yard somewhere, you're not likely to forget where it was that you buried it. That which we delight in, that which we rejoice in, sticks in our minds. But we know that it is easy to forget something or neglect something that you don't actually care about. Maybe you've seen a movie, and then a couple years later, somebody's like, hey, did you see that movie? You're like, I might have. It's possible. Sounds familiar. I didn't like it. Uh, And it sort of went in and went out. Uh, And it didn't really have any sort of lasting impact. But if you've seen a movie that you really liked, you're like, oh, yeah, I love that movie. It sticks with you. you. You remember those things that you delight in. The campfire will die out when you're not feeding it fresh wood. This doesn't just happen on its own. There is consistent effort that needs to go into this. So the challenge before us, as we submit to God's word this morning, is to, to guide and to cause our hearts to delight in what you find in God's word. We recognize it's not going to happen without consistent, intentional effort, diligence, discipline. It's important to continually fuel the fire in our hearts with fresh wood if we don't want to stray from God's way of blessedness. Verse 15 puts it in one word, meditation. Tim Keller, really summarizing what he learned from the Puritan John Owen, says this in his book on prayer. Meditation is thinking a truth out and then thinking a truth in until its ideas become big and sweet, moving and affecting, until the reality of God is sensed upon the heart. So I hope you notice the, it is a mental activity, but it is also an affectional activity. This should be settling into your heart. This is not always easy. You have to actively fight distraction. You have to actively fight wandering thoughts. But you fix your mind on a truth. You've read from the Bible, meditate on it. You can ask questions of it. What have I learned here about God or myself? And then you plead with yourself until your heart begins to turn away from every false way and it aligns itself with the attitudes and feelings and commitments that are consistent with the Bible and the path that leads to blessedness. And then you pray for an experience of the sweetness of salvation that you might actually genuinely, legitimately in that moment delight in God's word, delighting and rejoicing in it. Closing warning, if you are a reader of the Bible, you're doing well. But if you're not a lover of the Bible, you might wither and shrivel when the warm winds of temptation and affliction come. Make this our prayer, Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Now, I don't want anybody to walk away with the wrong message this morning. We do not need to confess our desire to obey God's law in order to be saved. We need to confess that the law points us to Christ as the resurrected Lord in order to be saved. This is the work of the law on our hearts. To confess that we need a Savior outside of us, to confess Christ with our lips, and to believe that God raised him from the dead with our hearts. To believe that God's judgments and laws and promises all find their their end, their yes and their amen in Christ. 
And then we walk as he walked, out of our sorrow and shame and sin and into the joyful purity of his marvelous life. Thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Oh
Like the voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602-866-8999. That's 602-866-8999. The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Now, this is a difficult portion to translate, but the terms settings spoke of really a timbrel or a tambourine. Your, your NASB Probably doesn't translate the best, but they say, or tambourine there. You'll see that. And then the term sockets really spoke of groove or a hole, which spoke of like a flute in a sense. And the NASB will also say there, or flute. These speak of musical abilities and instruments. Now, I prefer the NASB, but I think the New King James does a better job here. The workmanship of your timbrels and your pipes. I believe this is referring to his musical capability that God created in Lucifer before, and it was before he fell. Now, there are those who have a theology that say Lucifer is probably the worship leader in heaven. That's possible. The Bible doesn't say that. Certainly possible, but we need to be careful not to go where the Bible doesn't say. We don't want to add to it or subtract from it. But we do know that the morning stars and the sons of God, that they would sing together. Turn to Job. Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38, and this is where the Lord God is saying to Job, hey, you think you have a right to defend yourself and me to justify myself? Hey, where were you when I did all this? Right? He's going to say, hey, you're not God, I am. That's basically what he's going to say. And Job's going to repent and retract. But in that, this is what the Lord says. Job 38, verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you, Job? Tell me if you have understanding. Who said its measurements? Since you know, he's being sarcastic there, the Lord is, right? Or who stretched out a line on it? Or where were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Notice this. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Singing. If you don't like singing unto God right now, you're going to have a problem later on, which means you probably have a problem already. So then, we gain a little bit concerning our enemy Satan from his initial creation, obviously. We know that he was created to certainly reflect God's glory, and we're going to see later on he's a covering chair. We're going to see later on what we saw about his ability for music. And we need to be careful and not be ignorant concerning our enemy. We're not ignorant of his schemes. You see, he actually mimics and he is a counterfeit and he disguises himself as an angel of light. The Apostle Paul, in addressing false apostles, says this, and he brings in the one behind them in a sense. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. I'll read this for you. For such men are false apostles. They're bad guys out in the church. Deceitful workers, workers of deceit disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, or literally don't marvel, because Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. The reality is he disguises himself. And I believe one of the ways he does so, there's many different ways, is through music in the church. A lot of the so-called worship music is not from God at all. It's satanic. And what do I mean by that? It is earthly, natural, and demonic. It has to do with man's wisdom about God, man's feelings about God, rather than what God has revealed about himself being sung. And Satan is a master counterfeiter, and music fits right into his initial creation. But now it has been corrupted. 
So obviously he was corrupted by his wisdom and splendor, but certainly he was created to sing and praise in that sense. So back to our text. Notice this beauty and capability and wisdom and praise came about on the day he was created. Middle verse 12, thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Verse 13, you were in Eden, the garden of God, every precious stone. I talked about that. And then he says here, all this stuff, and I'll read it actually, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, the emerald, the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you on the day that you were created. They were prepared. He was created And he is a created being. He is like, in a sense, the prince of Tyre, a man. Now, Satan's not a man, but he's a created being, just like the prince of Tyre was a created being as a man, Satan as an angel. Satan is not God. Lucifer yet was created perfect without sin by the Lord, Colossians chapter 1. Now, notice in our passage we have his grand privileges. Verse 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers Now, in this short statement, we can observe a lot about Satan. First of all, he was a cherub and is a cherub. You say, well, what is a cherub? Well, cherubim are a type of living angelic spirit being that God created. They're seen, as I shared earlier, in Genesis chapter 3, 24, in the guarding the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life with flaming swords to keep fallen man, Adam and Eve, out. We see in chapter 3 of Genesis that God stationed the cherubim there. In Exodus, we see the likeness of two cherubim being made, their faces and their wings covering the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, their likeness being made. Psalm 18, verse 10, the Lord is spoken of riding on a cherub. As I shared earlier in the beginning of this service, the Lord is enthroned, Psalm 99, above the cherubim. Now, that lines up with the beginning of Ezekiel, where we see those cherubim, and the Lord is above them, enthroned above them. We see the living creatures with four faces, four wings, with the wheels within a wheel, and the expanse above them, where was the very throne of the Lord. And these cherubim reflected the Lord's glory. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, they're saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and is to come. Indeed, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5, they are called the cherubim of glory, those who were over the ark in a sense, and ultimately that behind that. And so in our text, we see that Lucifer here is the anointed cherub who covers. The anointed speaks of a special position, the special cherub in a sense, a special position, the anointed cherub who Covers. The term cover speaks of covering, obviously. It speaks of hedging or guarding something. It's the special privilege. He was the anointed cherub who covers. And then we see where God placed him. So in some sense, he had a place to cover and guard in the very presence of God. Middle of verse 14, and I placed you there. Satan didn't do it. God did it. He put him where he was. He created him. Okay. You were on the holy mountain of God. Now, I believe grammatically you could say this phrase this way if you translate it literally from the Hebrew. And I set you in the holy mountain of God. That's probably a better translation. Now, certainly Jerusalem was spoken of throughout scriptures as his holy mountain. But yet we see in Psalm 3, God answers from his holy mountain. That's speaking of heaven. Psalm 3, verse 2. Many are saying in my soul, David writes, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But thou, O Lord, art a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain, Selah. Speaking of his dwelling place in heaven. So then, God placed him there, and he created him, established him, placed him in a place of privilege. And then notice the latter portion here. It's kind of difficult to interpret. He says in the latter portion of verse 14, you walked... In the midst of the stones of fire. Now this could be referring to the coals of fire between the cherubim in chapter 1, chapter 10. Ezekiel possibly. But what we do know is that fire usually symbolizes God's purifying judgment. And the idea is that Lucifer could walk in the midst of this. He was blameless, as we'll see initially. Verse 15. You were blameless in your ways... From the day you were created. 
So then, Lucifer was created perfect. He was created perfect in wisdom, perfect in beauty. He was covered with jewels reflecting God's glory. He was in Eden. He was created to praise God perfectly in song. He was the anointed cherub who covers on the holy mountain and amidst the stones of fire. He was blameless in all his ways. Now, God wants us to understand this. And if you were paying attention, you'll notice those descriptions were all in the past tense. You were. You were. Not he is, but you were. Now, have you ever wondered, did God create evil? Is he responsible for evil? No, he's not. The scripture makes it clear that in the day he was created, Lucifer was created, he was perfect. He was blameless in all his ways. And yet God, as we will see, created him with the capacity to choose. He was given a will. And without a will, no one can choose to love and worship and obey. And so don't blame God for evil. We see Satan is behind it. He is the father of evil. So what can we apply here? Well, first of all, again, don't blame God for evil. It's not his fault. It's Satan, as we're going to see. And God has allowed it. He will even use that evil and did and is using that evil to accomplish his purposes, although it's not justified. Secondly, we need to know how to respond to our enemy. We stand against, in Christ, the most powerful created being. These people that go out there and try to rebuke Satan and stuff like that, even Michael the archangel didn't dare pronounce a railing judgment against Satan. Don't get caught up in that charismatic, satanic rigmarole. Christ is greater than Satan, not us. And we need to be very careful. We need to therefore submit to God and resist the devil, and he will flee from us. James, we need to recognize that Satan prowls about like a roaring lion, First Peter chapter 5, but resist him firm in the faith. We need to recognize that we're to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. We're to put on the full armor of God, which is the truth of what God has done for us. And then holding the shield of faith, trusting in him and the sword of the word, believing what he has said, praying. Then we are able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We need to recognize the reality that this foe is the greatest of foes, but yet our God is way above him. He is far above every power, authority, and dominion, far above. And he gave his life for us, and he loves us. And the scripture says, greater is he who is in you than he, speaking of Satan, who is in the world. Greater is Christ in you than he who is in the world. So with such a powerful foe, we need to completely walk by faith and make sure we're confessing sin because Satan uses our sin against us very effectively. As Paul would say, we're not ignorant of the schemes of the devil. We know from Ephesians chapter 4 that we are to not give Satan a place. We're to be angry but not sin. We're not to let the sun go down on our anger or even par, I guess, must alongside anger, lest we give Satan a place. We're to be forgiving like Second Corinthians, otherwise we give Satan a place. We give an advantage. We need to trust the Lord and walk in him, otherwise we are in a dangerous position as believers. We are vulnerable then to his attacks. We need to submit to God and resist the devil. We need to confess sin. We need to humble ourselves before his mighty hand, or we are then vulnerable to the attacks. So what happened? What happened? This perfect being, this created being that is the anointed cherub who covers beautiful, perfect in wisdom and beauty and praise for the Lord. Take a look back in our passage. Look at verse 15. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created. And then look at this. Until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade... It's interesting, kind of the same terminology as the leader of Tyre, the abundance of his trade, which was making money and giving himself glory, right? So abundance of your trade, he says here, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I've cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. 
Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you. I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified and you will be no more. So what's the cause of his fall? Well, he was blameless until unrighteousness was found. And we see here, verse 16, by the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. What's the abundance of his trade? I believe it's that he was beautiful and wisdom and splendor. And by those things, he exalted himself, as we will see. And thus we have the result of pride, which is you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Notice in verse 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Look at verse 17 actually now. Verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. We see Satan's heart was lifted up in pride because of his beauty. It was corrupted by reason of his splendor, his wisdom. Those things that God had created him with. He was corrupted. He was prideful. The attributes that were to give God glory, Satan chose instead to elevate his own heart and give himself glory. And that's the sin of Satan. It's pride. This ought to be a stark warning to us. As we see how the king of Tyre in the beginning of this message, pride comes before fall. If we give ourselves credit for anything, we are prideful. It is God that gives us the ability to do what we do. Satan was lifted up. You can't take a breath without God approving that. Your heart wouldn't beat one beat without God allowing that to happen. For believers, if God has gifted you, that very same area of gifting could become an area of stumbling and sin. God made Satan beautiful. God made him wise. But Satan was corrupted by reason of his splendor. There'll be temptation to take credit, to fill your heart in pride and self-sufficiency, but that is of Satan. Rest in Christ's strength alone. Do not elevate yourself, but humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. And a person who's thankful is doing that, is giving him the glory and the thanks. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. That's what God says. Take heed, you who stand, lest you fall. There's a lot of pride in Christians these days. It's just like Satan, and you wonder why your life's so messed up. Because Satan's got a foothold in your life. But if you confess your sins, you humble yourself, draw near to God, and resist the devil, he will flee from you. Well, with this in mind, we see that there's another passage also that it describes his fall. Turn to Isaiah chapter 14. And here, God is pronouncing judgment on Babylon and its king, and during this judgment, he addresses Satan. And we get a glimpse here, like Ezekiel, to Satan when he fell. Now, this passage is difficult because it fades in and out of the king of Babylon, but then ultimately to the force behind him. Kind of the same thing, but a little more difficult to interpret. But let's look at Isaiah chapter 14, verse 5. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, which used to strike the peoples in fury and unceasing strokes. Talking about Babylon being crushed, but that's what's going to happen there which subdued nations in anger and restrained with unrestrained persecution. The whole rest worth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into shouts of joy. Even the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were laid low, no tree cutter has come against us. Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. And it arouses for you the spirits of the dead and all the leaders of the earth. And it raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. Then they will respond and say to you, even you have been made as weak as us. You have become like us. Your pomp and the music of your harps have brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you and worms are your covering. And then notice it points now clearly to speak of Satan at this point in verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven. That's not a man that's fallen from heaven. Now you've fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, O son of the dawn. You have been cut down to earth, you who weakened the nations. He was for a brief moment speaking of the king of Babylon, but he moves to speak literally of the morning star, which is Lucifer. That's what that's translated from. 
The king of Babylon was not thrown from earth to heaven or vice versa. This is speaking of Satan. And notice what he says. But you said in your heart, and we're going to see five I wills. our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.